This is the Kingdom Movement Podcast, a place where we will explore through conversation how discipleship, theology, and community really can transform our world. the Jordan River and came to Jericho, the men of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I gave you victory over them, and I sent terror ahead of you to drive out the two kings of the Amorites. It was not your swords or your bows that brought you victory. I gave you the land you had not worked on, and I gave you towns you did not build, the towns where you are living now. I give you the vineyards and the olive groves for food, though you did not plant them. So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the god of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But as for me and my family... We will serve the Lord. So that was the kind of famous quotation, prophetic word that Joshua gave the Israelites after their conquest of the Canaanite land. And basically, uh, that's what we're going to be looking at today. So, Paulo, I'll let you kind of introduce the topic this time. Yes. Hey, everybody. So, thank, welcome to one more episode. This is our third episode. Yes. So, this is Jake and Paulo. And today we'll be continuing into our biblical stories and we'll be talking about Canaanite conquest, judges, kingdom of Israel, and rebellion. Yeah, so this is definitely, I feel like, one of those more hot topic Old Testament. Like, we're getting into that area where if someone wants to argue about God not being a loving God, they, they usually quote at least the Canaanite conquest and uh, kind of the beginning, maybe even a little bit in the judges. So... We're going to do our best. I think by no means either you or I would say we're experts in this section of the Bible. But uh, we did do some research. We did kind of want to come prepared for this one because we know it's a little bit more of a probably one that people have questions like what was going on? Why did the Israel, Why did God command the Israelites to wipe out these people? Um, but maybe to start us off where we left off in our previous episode, just to give a quick refresher. Um, the Israelites have been going through the wilderness Um, and Moses gets to look into the promised land, but he doesn't get to enter, and so we're kind of left with this, I think we basically said at the end of the last episode, this kind of ambiguity, like, is this project, this rescue project that God is trying to bring about through these people, is it going to actually happen, or are they just going to keep relapsing into disobedience, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So God has raised up a man named Joshua to lead the people, he was kind of Moses's second-hand man or right-hand man, Um, at the beginning or during the journey through the wilderness and now it's left with Joshua to lead the people into the promised land that it's been given and so that's where they start that's where the conquests begin and what's interesting is um, there's kind of like a mini reminder in the middle of this whole story of what God did for the the previous generation when he brought them out of Egypt he parted the Red Sea for them to escape the Egyptians 
But now there's a river Jordan that they need to cross in order to enter into the promised land. And God, once again, he sends the Ark of the Covenant, which holds the, the Ten Commandments and a few other objects. And he sends that through in the waters part again, almost as a reminder to this generation, right? I'm the same God that brought your grandparents and your parents out of Egypt. I'm the same God that's going with you into Canaan. So the story picks up kind of where they, uh, the first city that they're told to basically conquer is Jericho. I don't know if you want to maybe share that. It's kind of Jericho in, I, I can never say it right, it's spelled A-I-I-A, I think is how you might say it, are the two cities that they're supposed to conquer. So the story of Jericho, I feel like, is a good encapsulation of kind of what, God is doing in the midst of this story, right? And even in this verse we just read, um, God basically says, you didn't do any of this, right? It was me who brought you into this land. So don't think for a second like you can keep it by your own means as well. So I don't know. Do you want to give us a brief recap of Jericho? Yes. Uh, I think what you said makes kind of tell the story really because even in the book just got clearly tell them like this is a kind of thing that comes to remind you that this is my fight you're mm. just here as these expectators kind of you know and you, yeah. you you will have some responsibility which is you will carry the, the ark and then you'll go around the city you know yeah. this amount of times and just blow the trumpet but yeah, every, seven times yes. again that number seven uh -huh. yes and every every <laughs> While you do that, I am the one who's going to do the, the, the God's job. Yeah. So the, the stories about them, uh, just after they crossed, after God tells the God to strike them. I think that was after they sent the spies. Yes. Yes, they sent the spies to this. Uh, and then it goes well, other than the first time they did that. And then yep. uh, they meet this woman who protects them. And then God, and then they promise that when the time comes to destroy the city, the woman will be protected, won't be the woman's house won't be destroyed and everything. Yeah. She should call everyone from her family to the house and then everybody will be safe. So it's just it just shows how even God is not there to just is not just destroying people just randomly, you know, but he is a God of who will forgive for those who kind of show a repentance, kind of show uh how can I say compassion and yeah, so God is not there just to destroy everybody. So I just feel like that's one of the big thing about this story. So then God tells um, Joshua, Joshua, yeah, Joshua, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Joshua to give him his instruction, yeah. like put these people and with trumpet, and then with those people, with uh, some people will carry the ark, and you guys will go around the 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 city seven times, and then yep. you will blow up the trumpet, and then on the seventh day, I think, yes, that's when I will come and I will destroy the city, bring the judgment to the city. And so they go around this city with big walls, tall walls, and then they just go around and just start blowing trumpets, and everybody inside, kind of like, what's going on outside, out there, you know? And then uh, on the seventh day, God destroys, comes and destroys all the walls, and then just open space for the for the people to get get inside the city and destroy yeah so basically the way that it i feel like it encapsulates the conquest so well is god is basically like you said this is my battle i'm mm -hmm. fighting it it's not your swords and your bows and your you know large armies or skill i'm gonna take care of business but in the middle of that there's that woman rahab right who is 
kind of sees that, okay, maybe there's something to this God, yeah. right? And outsiders looking at the, the family that God has created to be the light of the world. And she sees in them something different than the city she lived in. And she's a prostitute, right? Like, uh, so you recognize like, wow, like there's something God is doing in this woman's life. And she rescues the spies and God spares her. And so when we come to the conquest narratives, I feel like there's a lot of language about totally wipe them out, totally destroy them, like don't leave anything left, you know, and not even animals. And people really kind of shy away from that because it's definitely like not 21st century modernist uh, language. Yeah. We, don't, we don't like that as we're sipping our latte in Starbucks. Um, and so I think it's a good opportunity before we really dive into what happens in the rest of the story um, to talk about like why exactly were, was that a command, mm-hmm. right? And when we, earlier in the biblical narrative, basically God says the time hasn't come for my wrath to fall on the Canaanites. I believe he's talking to Moses. Um, and basically says they haven't, you know, their wickedness has not come to the place that they should be wiped out, right? But he sees that their wickedness is, is going that direction. And so when we talk about that, these aren't just people who, you know, have a different God that Yahweh doesn't like. These are people who are sacrificing children. These are people that the Bible says were literally destroying the land with their practices. That they're, You can look in Leviticus uh, chapter 18 and it talks about the sexual practices of the nation, right? And we look at um, the Sodom and Gomorrah story, right, which was in, uh, in Canaan. Uh, and so you can imagine, fast forward a few hundred years, uh, what kind of practices are being done. So it's not like these people are just, you know, uh, real, real great people that y'all, you know, that's not to say that um, God just wants to wipe out people because they're bad. But we have to understand that God has promised this land to the Israelites, and he won't actually act until these people are at a place in his mind that they've crossed a line that they can't go back, right? Yeah. And um, I think it's also important to know, as God is creating a distinct people, um, he really, really is concerned that if they get in this land and they start intermarrying and they start adapting the culture of the Canaanites, that they're just basically going to mix it all in. They, up until this point, he even says in the verse that we read, they were worshiping other gods in Egypt before he called them out. And so it's going to be really easy to, to default into that Canaanite worship. You know, it's a, it's their practical, normal worldview. It's who they naturally would be. But Yahweh is really trying to tell him, you are supposed to be this distinct people, right? Um, And so it's interesting. So they win the Battle of Jericho, but already, uh, I was just looking it up, they get defeated at the next city called Aya that we mentioned. And basically there's a man named Achan, and he stole some of the dedicated things so the Lord was angry with the Israelites. So even in their very first battle, they're already disobedient, right? And so they fail, and they recognize, okay, there's someone in the, our midst who's not being obedient to Yahweh, and they get rid of him, and they end up winning the battle. But again, it just shows like how important it is to God that these people take their vocation seriously. You know what I mean? Um, and then there was the language of like, we totally desecrated, we totally wiped out, you know, we completely destroyed this city and all the people. But when we look further on in the biblical story of it, whether it be the book of Joshua or in uh, Samuel and Kings, there are still Canaanites living in that area. So I think it's important for us to understand like this language is hyperbole. It's not like 
literally what happened. It's the same way we, I gave the example of Donald Trump boasting up his resume. You know what I mean? Um, boasting in that kind of way was how people talked in the ancient world. And so uh, this idea of like completely wipe out, completely desecrate, like God even says, I gave you these cities to live in. So we have to understand that the language being used fits into the context of the people using it, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yes. And so all these things, you know, it doesn't make the story maybe any easier to swallow, if that makes sense, but it, it can at least give us context. Yes. And one thing I think, I was just thinking about this yesterday while reading the stories, and one thing I realized, like, let's, let's all think, like, now who, who are the worst people, kind of? Mm. Just imagine these people. Some, some of us can, would probably agree on, let's say, Putin, you mm. know, because yeah. of what he's doing, you know, and everything, you know. But then, if you want to take that view of, like, Putin being the worst person and then bring to, to the Bible, you know, Putin yeah. is not, it's nothing compared to what all these people were doing, yeah. you know. So that's why it's really dangerous to have that just bring today's context in how people are bad and then just bring that back to the time, you know, because we're talking about people who sacrifice, you know, babies and everything, mm-hmm. you know, people who like don't care about, uh, like if you are born with some kind of anomaly, you know, yeah. you are not considered, you're not treated as a human being, you know, and everything. So you're just talking about these people, which is really hard for us to understand right now because we have all this human right, all these things, you know, just protecting us. And we have Christianity playing a big role in all that, you know, just bringing this idea of equality, you know, in everything. But back on that time, that there was no human rights, you know, there was no equality, equality or anything, you know. So people could do whatever they wanted to do. So I just feel like sometimes we have these kind of misconception because we are living in today and we're reading this story and we're bringing our our cultural context to this culture to that cultural context and one thing that i'm just realizing now uh is the sense that you're a writer you know i i like books i i am journalist so for i feel like we both kind of understand that in the middle of the bible there is there there is some kind of uh style like literal li- mm-hmm. literature you know in there you know some kind of writing style you know we both understand that and we can easily i think we can easily you know take that and understand like not take that literally you know but we have to kind of see that the bible it's it's piece of art kind of you know it's a piece of literature you know so you have to understand all this way of talking you know way of just making this thing a hyperbole and then but you have to get into the context and then that's when you start to understand that is not so i, I don't know if you want to talk yeah. more about that uh, now i think that's a great point in the sense of like you can't take the psalms or like the book of solomon or the torah the first five books of the bible and lump them all as the same thing the bible is is stuffed full of different literary types of writing i think you make a great point in that sense and even the writing how writing is perceived in the day that it was written you know what i mean like two thousand years from now it's not going to be fair if the if we're still spinning uh you know it's not going to be fair for those people to place their cultural values their cultural lenses on what we have written and said in our own day right we think everything that we're doing is 
like our perspective is correct or the way that we write, we understand how we say it. But for someone 2,000 years from now, they, they would have to do a lot of research in order to understand and they would probably think we were pretty barbaric, you know what I mean, by their own standards. And so I think you make a great point that we have to, in order to understand the context of the Bible and that God works with people in the time that they live in, right? He's not working with post 2,000 years of post-Christianity societies, right, that have, whether you want to accept it or not, really implemented a lot of biblical worldviews into our, our way of thinking, our way of seeing the world, the way how we view, like, what is right and wrong, you know what I mean? Like, um, all those things are, are very much ingrained in us from a Christian viewpoint at this, at this time in history, right, um, where they don't have any of that, like you said. Um, I think as well, it's important to understand, too, that this is a very distinct time, that in Deuteronomy 20, God literally says, this is how you're supposed to fight the Canaanites, and if you ever get in a war with anyone else, this is how you're actually supposed to fight them. So God is not actually um, interested in this is how they should always act, right? This was for a very specific time, a specific um, people, and, you know, it's really interesting. I didn't have any notes on this. Michael Heiser's uh, Unseen Realm, mm-hmm. it, you know, he has a very interesting perspective on this, and I'm not going to go into it because it's super complicated, but basically that every one of the people groups that God tells the Israelites to wipe out are actually um, full of giants, and we see that with, like, the Goliath narrative, and basically that these giants are offspring of the sons of, is it sons of God or sons of, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. Sons of God. Basically, uh, like heavenly beings who have disobeyed God and created these offspring. So, anyways, you know, if you want to dive into that more, you can read Unseen Realms if that really interests you. And it is an interesting perspective, you yeah. know what I mean? It really helped me see these chapters in a new way. Uh, but, anyways, I think we didn't want to hang out here too long because we have a lot to cover. Yeah. But I think it's just important to note that during this time period of conquest, the Israelites don't fully go all in and i sorry to backtrack one more time god even allows like there's a group called the gibeonites that make a deal with israel and partner with them and god spares them right so i think in this story just like with sodom and gomorrah god and just like his negotiation with moses on the on mount sinai god is willing to include other people if they're willing to meet him where he is at right like if they're willing to say you know what um, we recognize that this is your people, God. We aren't going to fight them. God is willing to embrace those people, right? So we have to also understand that side of it in the sense of many of Israelites' enemies, if they would have said, you know what, we don't want to fight these guys. We believe that Yahweh is the true God. It could have totally changed the narrative. You know what I mean? But anyways, so the Israelites eventually, over time, take over most of the land. They don't take over all of it. They do compromise. They don't fully obey, right? Partial obedience, which is disobedience in a sense. Um, And it creates this period where, you know, you kind of, again, you get the sense of, okay, we kind of did what God was telling us to do, but we didn't, and it's left with ambiguity. So the 12 tribes of Israel basically set up shop in the different lands. They distributed. Joshua makes sure they're all good. Then Joshua passes away. And then it's interesting, there's kind of this ominous um, verse. I don't know if it's at the end of Joshua. I was looking for it the other day. But it basically says, and the next generation did not know Yahweh. Mm. And it just makes you realize. And then it goes into the next book, the book of Judges. And you're just like, here we go. You know what I mean? What does this mean? 
Um, and so Judges is kind of the next section. So the conquest narratives, Israel takes the land, they divide it up between the different tribes, and now they're kind of just, they're in the promised land. So now what's next, right? Um, so Judges, I don't know if you want to give the brief overview, if you want me to keep going. Uh, so yeah, the book of Judges, uh, Judges are these people that God empowers to come and judge the evil in in the middle of God's people and then those people after God uses them and to lead the people of God to have these big conquests you know and real big armies that are coming and fighting uh, and fighting and threatening the, the, the God's people you know so it's this group of people that God comes and the power and I feel like what you said it's kind of connect each each story of each judge you know it starts with at that time people and uh, they didn't know God you know I think that's the yeah that's the verse that always comes um, before a new judge comes on you know it's like comes this judge and then he, he, he judges the people and then he passes away and then they forget about God. And then they say at that time, people of God, uh, the Israelite didn't know God. And then God raises another judge and, and so on. So those are people who come and yeah, just lead the, 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 the Israelite into conquering. You know, there's this big threat that comes into the Israelite, and then when they see this big threat, that's when they remember, oh, yes, we have this God, you know, <laughs> for some reason. And yeah. then they're like, oh, yes, we have this God. And then, then the judge will come and tell them, just throw away all your gods and everything, just uh, renew your alliance with God. And, and when they do that, God comes and fight for the people, and then he delivers them from the threat. You know, and then the judges die, and then they forget about about God. So, in general, that's what happens. Each judge has a specific way of doing that, and uh, my least favorite ones are Samson, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. And you know, I, I so they basically have these as the the major judges, yep. if you will. So it's Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, and Jephthah and Samson so that I you know I don't really know why they um, say that they're the major ones I think probably because they are probably the biggest stories or the most impactful I'm not sure I I again like we said this is not the area that we are the most well read on but and then there's a set of minor judges as well I think it's really important to know just like context wise that these conflicts are kind of tribal and regional mm -hmm. so this yeah, is yes. there's no united kingdom at this point you very much have to think of 12 distinct tribes that all belong to each other by family, but they operate pretty independently. So like, just like there's tribes, and this is something I even learned, that there are many, many tribes in Botswana, they just all speak a common language. And so there's a commonality, but a distinction at the same time. And I think it's probably the same way in Mozambique. Yes. So you have to think in those tribes, the judges rose up for those distinct tribes to rescue them. And as well, like, Anytime you read a book, sometimes it's hard to grasp like how much time is passing like when you're reading the story. But this is like a period of 400 years. So it's not like, you know, just the next day they're screwing up or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's like over time, it just becomes this ebb and flow of back and forth. But I think there's something, you know, as you were describing, that's really, really interesting. Um, and it's this idea that like, I think in our own, if we took it down to a personal level, so we're talking about like people, but at a personal level, Oftentimes, we are like the Israelites. 
where it's like God has given us these promises, he's come through for us in powerful ways, and then we forget him, you know, and it's only till the next big crisis or big issue in our life, like then we go back to God and we say, okay, God, like we need you. And what's incredible is instead of saying no, like what, what do you mean? Like you literally are just using me, right, for your own personal gain. God comes to the rescue, you know what I mean? He, he probably knows exactly what they're going to do again, but God still, in his love for his people, comes back and rescues them and uses a human being to be a part of that, right? So we've constantly talked throughout this that God's purposes, he always wants to work through his people to bring about his purposes. So God, yes, he does act mightily, and it's not just the Israelites who are doing it, but God always raises up someone, a human being, as kind of his representative to be kind of that spokesperson or that example to his people of, I want to use human beings to bring about my purpose. That's my intention. You know what I mean? So I think that's cool because it just fits into kind of the broader narrative of the Bible in general. Yeah. And one thing that I think it's kind of continuous, or you will continue once we get to the to the book, to, Sol- to Solomon's book, and then we get yeah. to King's books, you know. One thing you will realize is that the Bible says God, you know, empowers these people, you know, God, you know, indicate these people. But then you just realize that these people, they do bad things, you know, they just choose to do better. For example, Saul, 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 Saul. Uh, now you got me saying it wrong. Uh, not wrong. Uh, In Portuguese. Saul. Saul. So yeah. Saul, you know, is this person, you know, who is kind of, you know, God's kind of approves, you know, him ruling. But then you see him doing all these bad things, yeah. you know, just like this. And then you see the kings, you know, all these kings, you know, that just come and just do all these horrible things and yeah. everything, you know. So you start, I yesterday when I was reading this, this, you know, just you start asking yourself, like, what happened? Is it God? Is God doing, you know, making a bad choice, you know, into these people? So you start asking yourself, like, but what, what, what's really going on with these people? But then you have to start reading these stories that is like not God coming and changing people's minds, you know, not God coming and taking someone's mind and then putting him his mind and then making them do all these things, you know. But God is using those people. So these people are still themselves. They can still choose to do whatever they want. They can still choose if they want to follow God or if they want to do whatever they want from for their head. So once you read the story that way, you know, you will start realizing and you start seeing yourself into that, you know, like sometimes God, God did do a great things, you know, using me, you know. There are things that I do, pray for people, you know, say things to people, you know, that I would never be able to do, you know, I would never be able to see this person need, that this person is having knee problem, you know, even before asking, you know, but God uses me for those things, you know. But when it comes, sometimes I choose, you know, to not follow those things and everything, you know. So I just feel like sometimes when we read the Bible, we read in the sense of these are the people, a superhuman people, you know, that God is using. If God chooses that person, then that person has to be perfect. And then when you see this person not being perfect, you start asking, mm, is this really a powerful God or anything, you know. But we have to read mm-hmm. as those are human beings. No, I think that is an excellent point in the sense of, God uses people and uses not in the sense of like as tools just, you know, that he doesn't care about. But God desires that people partner with what he's doing. Right. 
and he will always desire that, but he will bring about his purpose. And we may try and frustrate that. We may bring about um, a longer uh, journey to that purpose, but God will always bring that purpose from whether it's from evil or from good, right? And so I think the last maybe thing that we can just talk about is the idea of because the Canaanites remained, this kind of time period in Judges is chock full of syncretism. Syncretism is basically just melding the different beliefs um, of people groups. So a great example maybe in the African context is the churches that mix like Christianity with traditional stuff. We would say that's a syncretism because they're taking practices that used to exist within culture and applying it to Christianity. So that becomes a huge issue because it's not Yahweh worship of Yahweh alone. It's Yahweh and you know the Canaanite god of crops or the bio. You'll hear his name a lot, right? Which is like the storm god, the second in command. Um, there's El, which is like the head of the Canaanite gods, and even he gets kind of mixed in with Yahweh at times, right? And so the syncretism, because it loses the identity of Yahweh, I would say that he is the God over all things. He's not sharing power. He's not the God over here that will take care of these problems. Well, we got to go over here to make sure the crops grow, right? Like, no, God is saying, I am the creator. There is no one else but me. And so the syncretism, because of disobedience, it always leads to a um, skewed view of God. Mm-hmm. And I think in our own lives, when we choose disobedience, even with Saul, that which we'll get to, when we choose disobedience, it leads to a skewed view of who God is to us, right? And what he's trying to accomplish. And so I think that's really important in our own lives that like our obedience helps us see who God really is and what he's trying to do in the world. You know what I mean? And so the Israelites kind of go through this cycle until eventually they get to the point where they say, to um, Samuel, which will I'll let you maybe explain Samuel a little bit because you said you've been reading the book of Samuel lately. Um, so actually, let's start there. So the last kind of judge that God raises up is a guy named Samuel, and maybe you can kind of explain the unique story of Samuel. Yeah, and before that, we have kind of in between story. That, okay. Yeah, which is the story of uh, his mother. Is that what you're talking? No, 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 no. It's the book of Ruth, I think. Oh, really? It's Ruth or... With Boaz. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. So we have that book. It's It, it happens during the time yes. uh, of the judges. So you can read it. It's a really beautiful story and yeah. everything. And I would say the reason why that book exists is to kind of explain um, the lineage of David in a way. Mm-hmm. Because Ruth and Boaz are the either great-grandparents or grandparents of David. And that she's not an Israelite, yeah. which again just shows, you know, within the big story that God is willing to work with people outside of Israel. It's not like God is saying, you're the only people that I care about, Mm -hmm. but that they have a distinct vocation to be a light to the nations. But people within other nations, if they recognize Yahweh, God is happily and willingly um, ready to invite them into the family, if that makes sense. Yeah, so after that, that's when we start the the story of Kind of the last judge, which is uh, Solomon. Uh, Samuel. Uh, Samuel. Yeah. Samuel. So the story of Samuel, it starts with telling the story of his mother, you know, who was just 
crying and praying and then I think it's his husband who comes and just like did you drink wine or everything you know are you uh, no it's uh, Eli the the priest I oh yes yes it just come like what's going on lady did you just drink wine <laughs> are you and drunk then, yes. at the tabernacle <laughs> she said no I'm not drunk I just um, I'm just here praying and sobbing she was just sobbing and praying because she couldn't have a son and then God God becomes faithful into that and just telling her that that she will have a son and then we have the story of they should go tell their husband and husband kind of not believe exactly and then the, the angel comes again and then just to assure that to them so then she get pregnant and she has this son and then she decide to give the son back to God yeah. which is to give it to the uh, training center well to become basically the next a priest mm-hmm. and I just to pause it you can continue the story I think what's cool about that story with his mother because afterwards it really just focuses on Samuel but here is a woman's need or desire to have a child right and that is a personal desire you know what I mean in the big grand scheme of things that we said like oh if you look at the big story of God does it really matter but what I love about God is he takes our personal wants and desires and folds them into the big story that he's weaving, if that makes sense. That God's purpose is to raise up Samuel uh, for all the other tasks that he's about to do, but he does it with a woman who desires to have a son. Yes. You get what I'm saying? And so God cares about the personal story within the big story. And for me, like that just means so much because my personal story can mean something in the big story you know that's kind of the the encouragement i get from that but anyways yeah samuel's dedicated to the temple or sorry the tabernacle to work with uh, so, yeah, Eli. so yeah he's dedicated there and then he start living there and then start being trained so he get to this point where he's still he's still training he's still a student there he doesn't understand who god is exactly and how he works how he talks yeah. and everything you know so then he start calling him, you know, he calls him like, hey, um, Samuel, Samuel, and then Samuel just wake up like, hey, he went and runs to his uh, priest, his Eli. priest, yeah, to Eli and say, hey, are you calling me? Yeah. And then he's like, no, I didn't call you, go back to sleep. And then he just go runs and go back to sleep and then here's the same calling and then go runs back and then say no and then it happens three times and then on the third time that's when Eli realized like oh maybe I think it's God calling this this mm. this this guy you know so I just say the next time you hear the voice just say here I am and then that's when he take that position and then I think that's the that's when God comes and assure that God wants to use him for this great purpose, you know, yeah. and everything to lead and judge the people of God uh, yeah. in the place of Eli. And I think it's <laughs> the very human story in the midst of that, too, is Eli's got two sons that like uh, mm-hmm. running around with the women of the town, right, and getting drunk. And and God basically says to Eli, you're going to lose your family is not going to keep this up because you're unwilling to even stop them. Right. Eli's kind of like that. The guy who does want to serve God, he obviously like can hear God's voice and has wisdom, but he's kind of complacent at the same yeah. time. You know, he's not willing to call out his sons. They're desecrating the tabernacle with the things that they're doing. Um, and so God does, he raises up Samuel to replace Eli. His family's not going to continue on in that role. But yeah, like you said, Samuel becomes kind of the, the leader and figurehead, the voice for the people if they need direction and need to hear from God. But at a certain point, again, the people, and I think what's so interesting about this next stage is 
you know, we see, I'm getting ahead of us, but we see like this idea of David as like this kingly figure, this model that becomes like the person that God wants to use, right? But at the beginning, the, the whole idea of the king is actually the people's idea, not God's. And God's actually frustrated with them. He says, they have rejected me as their king. And so now just give them a human king. And Samuel basically lays it out. He's like, you know what you guys are asking for, yeah. right? Like, he's going to take your lands. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to, basically, he's going to own you if you choose to give this human being this kind of authority over you. And the reason, I think the, the more important idea is because God does want to use a kingly figure, which will end up being Jesus, right? Getting way, way ahead of ourselves. So God's purpose is for Jesus to come. That has always been the purpose. But the means by which it comes and the heart from which it comes is that these people don't trust God. They don't trust that he can provide for them. Even though time and time and time again he has shown up when they needed him. And so they want a king, it literally says like all the other nations, to basically... And it comes down to this. A king provides security. A king can organize armies. A king can create the infrastructure, unite the 12 tribes, and give them a better kind of unification of the 12 tribes. And so it's basically going about a human mean, human means to provide what God has already promised them. We saw that with Cain, right? When he builds the city, he's using a human means, a city, to protect himself. When God has already promised him, I will look after you, right? So you get this idea of people want a king. So God concedes to them, says, all right, I'll give you a king. And, and the, most, the most frustrating thing, I think, also about this story is the sense of we have to understand this story as God making this, wanting the Israelite to be this role in the whole community mm -hmm. that's around them, you know. He wants them to be this role just to be like what happened when the people of God follow their God and they're led by their God, you know. Mm -hmm. So God doesn't want them to be like all these other yes. kingdoms, you know. So he wants to be them to be different, you know, so they can, other than having this king, you know, they have him. God is the one who's leading them. That's what God, what God wants. But then they just look at all these other kingdoms and just yeah. say, like, we want to be like them, you know. We want to have the same thing these people have. We want to have the same leader these people have. So it's the sense, is this... People, you know, God wanting them to be different, but then they they don't want to be yep. different. They want to be like other kingdoms. So it's just these people who have this amazing God, but they never get to understand yeah. their God. They never get to understand how he works, how he, do, he does things, and why he does all those things. For them, it's just like, we see these people, and then we're going to copy them. And you see that all over the story, you know, we see these gods, the people, these people are having, our God is good, he's fed us, he gave us all this food, but also we want to have the same thing they have, you know, so they, they take the same God, the gods, you know, they have, you know, you see these people having thousand women, you know, it's like, uh, we know, you know, God says in all this, we have these women, but we also have these people, so they come and take them. They have these thousand slaves, they take them, they take the slave and everything. Yeah. So you just see these people who, they never want to look at God. They just want to look at other kingdoms. Yeah. The kingdom that they were supposed to be uh, different from them, they want to be like, like them. them. Yes. And I'm just looking at my notes as you were talking. It's this idea that Israel is likely tired of the cycle of conquest and repentance and then revival. So instead of seeing like 
their personal disobedience as the issue, right? Like if they would just turn from disobedience to obedience, then they wouldn't have to keep going through this. Mm-hmm. Uh, they see the problem um, being solved by what all the other kingdoms are doing, right? And I think that is another huge issue is like in our own, again, that's the macro or big picture of a nation that is unwilling to be obedient. But at a personal level, like in our own lives, rather than recognizing, am I really being obedient to what God wants me to do in my life? So I just keep going through these cycles of like, okay, like, yeah, I go down and then I turn to God and he forgives me and I feel at peace, but then I kind of slip back in and it's over and over and over because we haven't created the the habits of obedience, right? Mm -hmm. And so disobedience will always create kind of that cycle in our life of never feeling like we get to that place. And eventually when people live in that kind of way, they usually get tired. And so they either decide to just (laughs) chuck all of it or, you know, they just start creating excuses or crystallizing their thoughts and beliefs and habits that this is just who I am, right? And that's kind of more at the personal level. So I think before we dive into the first Kings, so talking about Saul, David, Solomon, and then we'll kind of get into the long history of all the other kings that follow. Let's just take a quick break. I think it's a good pause spot um, just as we kind of shift into the, the kingdom of Israel. Hey guys, this is Jake. If you are currently a university student on a campus in Botswana, we want to extend an invitation to you to get plugged into a discipleship group. So if you're interested, if that's something you want to do, if you want to begin to be a part of this family we call Kingdom Movement, we would encourage you to go into this episode's bio. There should be a link to our Instagram page. You can send us a message, and we will make sure to connect to you at a time and a place that works best for you and your schedule for school. But we don't want you to miss this opportunity to get plugged in and a part of what God is doing on the university campuses here because we believe that you're a vital piece to what God wants to do to bring his kingdom, his wholeness, and his healing to the nation of Botswana and to the university specifically. So reach out to us today, guys, if that's something you're interested in. All right, thanks. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths and brings honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. For you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will live in the house of the Lord forever. So that is a psalm, probably the most famous psalm. Uh, ever written, written most likely by the king named David. Um, and David will become kind of a, the central figure in this next section that we're going into. But where we left off was um, with Samuel. He was basically given the priestly role to lead God's people. The people wanted a king. And so Samuel consults God. He says, okay, who do you want to choose for the king? And so the, basically a guy named Saul is chosen. And it's just funny because even in the biblical description, he's a head taller than everyone. He's a handsome guy. He's a strong guy. He's basically the, if you're going to look in a gym, right, and you see all these guys, and you're like, yeah, that's the leader of the pack, right? So from an outward appearance, Saul is, 
is the kingly figure that the people want, right? He basically unites the tribes. So like we said at this point, there's 12 tribes that work together, but they're not necessarily united. So now they become the, what's called the kingdom of Israel. So they are all united under Saul's rule. He um, is the one that can raise an army to fight their enemies, mainly the Philistines at this point have become the major enemies of the people of God. So Saul, um, up until a certain point, uh, things are going all right, right? Like he's listening to God, he's, he's following him, but very, very soon after Saul is made king, he's disobedient. And I should have looked it up before. Do you remember what the disobedience is, that the exact thing he does? It has to do with um, not listening to what Samuel has told him, but I can't remember. Oh, um, are you meaning the big one, the last? Yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of the one that God says, okay, mm -hmm. I'm moving on. Yeah, yeah, so he is supposed to go and conquer this, this place. I don't remember exactly okay. where he is. Where, yeah, I'll see like, if I can look it up as yes, we're talking. Please. Yeah, so he's supposed to go and conquer this place, but then he's supposed to destroy everything. You know, mm, just okay. don't take anything. You know, these people are really bad, so just destroy everything, the animal and, you know, everything but once they get there you know they conquer the place but they he, he doesn't destroy everything you know he just say okay i will keep this and that you know but then the rest things the rest i, I will destroy so i think yeah if i remember if i recall that that was the biggest the biggest the last one but i feel like there is something about soul right in the beginning you know the first how how he's introduced you know he's introduced by this tall by being this tall and handsome guy but then the story that follows about him it's his father sending him out uh to look for this animal that got lost and then the the the, the thing yeah. about is just like he he tells his his companion like you you see this animal is lost we will never find it you know let's just go and lie to our father you know so uh, right at the beginning introducing of uh, introducing him you know the bible introduced him at this coward you know this person who just like it is not obedient is not even obedient to his father you know he's just gonna lie and then that's when god that's when god takes him to meet samuel and then samuel says hey the animal you guys are looking for it's back to your father and your father is worried about you not not the animal anymore and everything you know so it's there's this introduction introduction about him as this uh guy who is if he, he sees something you know if he sees opportunity of just making things easier for himself will take it you know so and that's what yes. happened uh in the whole story you know and the story also shows him that someone who, lead, who, who will hear God, but he, he kind of not consulting in the things, you know. Yeah. Some, uh, the prophet Samuel, Samuel is the one who has to come and tell him, you know, do this and that, you know. When it com you start comparing him with David, you know, David yeah. is someone who consults God. Hey God, can I do this, you know. I want to do this. Can I stay here, you know. Can I go there? Can I take these people? But yeah. some, uh, Saul is not like that. Saul yeah. is just like, go for it, you know. And then he just, so I feel like that just portrayed how he is and his personality. Yeah, so the, the story basically, I just looked it up, is they have been fighting the Philistines and I believe they win the battle, but, or they're about to have this battle and Saul needs to make a sacrifice to the Lord, but Samuel's the one that's supposed to make the sacrifice. Oh, yeah. 
but Saul, it literally says, Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away. So people were kind of like, because you have to understand, because these were still individual tribes, the king had to gather them at a central place. It wasn't just like, you know, you called them on the phone. This was months and months of planning. And people begin to just go their own way after the, de- the deed's done. But he's trying to unify the people around himself. And without Samuel to be there to kind of give these sacrifices, the people are going to leave. And so he decides, you know, we're not going to wait for Samuel. Let's just do it ourselves. And it's based out of, again, this idea of fear. I think Saul is a guy from the very beginning, and you see it throughout his interactions, a man who's led by fear, fear and insecurity in his kingship. And so rather than trusting in the Lord to be the one that has anointed him as king, he didn't deserve it again, right? He, God chose him. He he was not the person that like stood up and said he was the guy hiding in the sheep pen again fear right mm-hmm. you see this as a mark of his life as someone who's afraid um, and doesn't recognize that it is god who makes kings and god who removes kings and once he's given the kingship he wants to hold on to it for himself mm-hmm. and by doing that um, he's driven by fear and he's not driven by obedience to god and so this disobedience to how things should have gone um leads to Samuel saying, how foolish of you, right? You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And so I think what's really important to understand too is in the kingly role, If God's going to work through a king, the king has to have a heart after God, right? It's very much an important thing for this person as the representative of the Israelite people, the people who are meant to be God's people, that his heart is fully devoted to the Lord, right? There is no halfway measures with this person. They need to be devoted to the Lord. So from this moment on, Saul, again, is driven by fear, fear of losing his kingship, paranoia of who this person who's going to usurp him is going to be and so enter in the story of david right david defeats um has defeated goliath i believe this is actually an earlier point in the story right before um well let's see no okay so let's fast forward a little bit samuel goes he goes to um this village in bethlehem where god has told him the next king's going to be he meets a man named Jesse. Jesse brings out all of his sons, right? So it's almost the opposite story. Mm-hmm. And Samuel's looking at the sons. He's like, oh, yeah, this one's the king. And God's like, nope, this isn't the king. And he brings all of them out. He, he's forgotten about David, basically, Jesse has. And he says, is this all your sons? And he says, well, there's, there's the little guy out in the yes. field, right? Obviously, David uh, has killed a bear and a lion, so it's yeah. not like he's pathetic. But he's just not, from the outside, the person people believe would be the king. He says, well, I have one more. Let me call him in. And this is the one, right? And I, I think by then, David didn't share this story with his family because he doesn't look like they did. Mm. The Bible doesn't say that they know all this story, all the things that have happened to him. You know, So he just kept the stories for himself. He only shared the stories when comes the time to go and defeat Goliath. That's when... And the king and Saul is doubting him and just say, like, just remember, God helped me to destroy these and those and those animals, you know. So God will give me this big guy. Yeah. And so he gets anointed. But what's interesting is 
he gets anointed, but really that's the end of it. You know, you almost wonder if his family tries to keep it hush-hush. It's not like it was done in the village square or something, right? Um, because this is the real world. And imagine, you know, in, a, in an African country, there's a guy who gets anointed to be the, the next leader. Well, the current leader is not going to like that, right? He's going to want to find this guy and he's going to want to hunt him down, right? To make sure that he can't take his power from him. But uh, so at this point, no one really knows. It, I'm sure even David's kind of like, what's going on, mm-hmm. right? But I think from that moment on, he recognizes that God has placed him in a position, right? And so he is determined that he will trust God. If God has, And this is, I think, why God has chosen them. Because this was the posture of his heart before he was ever anointed. Was that if God has chosen him, if God has given him this, then who can be against yes. him, right? And he's not afraid to lose the kingship mm-hmm. because it was never his to take, right? He always has trusted that God has given this to him. So anyways, we fast forward a little bit. Um, and his brothers are the ones that are fighting a war against the Philistines. And if you understand the geography... The reason why Jesse, his father, sends David to see how things are going is if this battle is lost, the next town that's probably going to be taken is Bethlehem. Yes. So it, there's a big stake in this fight, right? And so they get there, David gets there, and he sees his brother and everyone's really afraid because there's a one-on-one combat challenge from this guy named Goliath who's a giant, this big, big dude. Um, I, I think most people, even if they don't go to church, have heard of David and yeah. Goliath. But... David basically says, you know, why are you guys afraid of this dude? I'll face him. I don't give a, you know, I'm not as scared of this guy. And all his brothers are like, they literally are like, bro, just shut up. Could you imagine your baby brother showing up and be like, why are you afraid of this guy? You know, like they're just annoyed with David. They're like, just go home. What are you doing here? Like talking this big game. But he, David, you know, with a little bit of that swagger that he carries with himself, goes to Saul, who's in his tent, and says, I'll fight him for you. And even Saul's like, you sure about this? But the funny thing is, so it's kind of turned into a humorous story if you read it in the kid's book. Saul says, okay, well, I'll give you my armor. But here's the important thing, that the real kind of story, Saul is afraid to fight for his people. There's that fear factor again, right? He doesn't want to be the one to face Goliath, even though he should be the one that fights Goliath for his people. But here is David, the true king, who's coming and saying, I'm not afraid of Goliath, I'll fight him. Even though he's not a warrior, he's not like a trained um, soldier. So he's doing the job that Saul should be doing. And instead of saying, no, 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 David, I'll do it. He says, let me put you in my armor so that when you go out there, people think you're me. You get what I'm saying? So David instead of wearing the armor because it's clunky and he's not used to it. But the the real motive behind Saul's armor is not to protect David. It's to make it look like he is the one, right? He doesn't want to fight the battle, but he wants the glory for the battle. And and one very interesting thing, it's David's speech, you know, when he is Goliath, like, who is this person who is coming and kind of like, uh, like talking bad things about people, God's people, you know. Yeah. So in right in the beginning, you know, David is this person who comes and defends. He really understands how Israel is and he really understands 
how Israel is different from every other kingdom because they have God, you know. Yeah. So David is portrayed as this person who has a clear vision of who, who God is and who God can do and what it means for a group of people who claim that we have this amazing God. So it kind of just shows us this person who have Saul who, who trusts his strength and everything. But you have David who is this kind of like... You don't expect a lot of things. You don't expect a lot of things with your last child. You know, mm. it's just this person, this person. You're just keeping them safe. You know, big, giving them everything you think they will need, paying the best school. You know, yeah. and everything. You know, just trying and hoping that at least something will come out of them. But you don't expect a lot of things from them because they don't have a lot of leadership and everything. So it's someone who was born, you know, without a lot of expectation in his life, yeah. you know. So it kind of like he didn't have anything to trust. He was not strong in anything big. So he didn't have a lot of things to trust in himself. So he is this perfect person to just kind of trust in God. And then the Bible says perfectly like you guys see uh, outside but God sees someone's yeah. heart you know so I just feel like David is portrayed as this really good guy who really understands his God and kind of like just go there for, with that you know yes and it's something that I kind of learned just on a trip that I took to Israel in university was you know a lot of times we view David as like the unpre or not unprepared but like ill-equipped but in reality, the sling was like having a 50 caliber revolver gun, like the way that you can use the sling. Mm. And he has the distance advantage. So in reality, God had prepared David before this battle ever happened to fight this battle, if that makes sense. And so David was actually better equipped, even if on the outside it didn't look like mm -hmm. it. And so it wasn't a matter of, it is miraculous because in the sense of David trusts God, but David trusts God and God has prepared David for the moment, if that makes sense. And so David steps into the moment already prepared and God just comes through on the other end of it, right? And so to make a long story short, David ends up beating Goliath, hits him in the head, forehead, straight up with a sling and cuts off his head and the Israelites conquer the Philistines. And then there's this moment, it's a comical, but this is where you begin to see the dark term. The women start celebrating and they say, Saul's killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands, right? And Saul does not like that. That's not a good PR move. But just imagine, like, yes. imagine you're the king and then some group of people are just singing like, you as a king, you just killed thousand. And then there's yeah. this guy who killed 10,000, you know, you're just like all these, you know, just this image and everything. Did you, did you read uh, that book, um, The Tale of Three Kings? Yes, yes, oh, yeah. it's a great so, book. Yeah, it's a great book. I, I think it's my third favorite book yeah. so far. So I would, I, would, I would recommend to go and read it. It has a kind I'll of... I'll say a, it again just for Tale of Three Kings. I'll make sure to add it in the link yes, as well. Yeah, please go ahead and read it. It's an amazing book. And it's a really short. short. Yeah, it's yeah, like it's, maybe 70 yeah, pages. Yeah, it's short for those who are starting to read. But yeah. So David basically becomes really good friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. And Saul... Saul even invites David to be a part of his court to play mm -hmm. the harp for him, basically. And you wonder, too, if this isn't just a purely, uh, uh, what would you say, altruistic, uh, from the goodness of his heart move. But perhaps he wants to keep this young shepherd boy who kills his tens of thousands close at hand, right? And even you see that Saul gets in these rages and he tries to kill David. 
So you, you almost can see that fear, that insecurity. It's getting sent towards this young man who who really is the right king, right? He is the one that really truly deserves to be king. And Saul is really the the fraud, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the positions are switched. So eventually it gets so bad that David recognizes, he marries into the family. Saul like kind of sets him up to die. He says, yes. bring me a hundred Philistine. Is it a hundred? Yeah, I think so. hundred Philistine foreskins. Yeah. <laughs> Go kill them and bring me proofs that you yeah. killed them. <laughs> I want you to, you know, you're not going to take a foreskin, uh, uh, unrequested or requested right that's not something you can just walk up and say hey bro can i have that exactly so david does it you know what i mean he he goes above and beyond i think he actually gets more than what saul asked for so he ends up marrying into saul's family which i don't think was what saul wanted at all no because even he does it he did it two two times the first time he did Mm. it and then he he kind of went on his back and then married the son to someone else yes and then that's when there's this second daughter you know that she's in love with with david you know she kind of liked david and then just said okay i'll do this again i'll try again and then that's when he gives him his second challenge and david david just just uh, yeah. go there and conquers and everything and that's I think that's when he just gave, gave so I gotta him. read it because yeah. it's just funny it says when Saul's men reported this back to the king um, basically the news about David he said tell David that all I want for the bride price is a hundred Philistine foreskins vengeance on my enemies is all I really want but Saul had in mind was that David would be killed in the fight David was delighted to accept the offer <laughs> Before the time limit expired, he and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. Then David, yeah, then David fulfilled the king's requirement by presenting all their foreskins to him. So Saul gave his daughter, uh, Michal, to David to be his wife. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and how much his daughter Michal loved him, Saul became even more afraid of him and he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. Yeah, and one thing I, f- I feel like it's really important to also highlight here is the relationship between David and um, what is De- and Saul's son? Uh, Jonathan. And, yeah, and Jonathan, you know, because Jonathan is the one who is supposed to be king right after Saul dies, you know. Rightfully, you know, Jonathan since is the, the, is, is, is the rightful, you know, heir, you know. So he's, once Saul, Saul dies, you know, his, his son is the one who should take the kingdom and then rule the kingdom, you know. But Jonathan has this... He understands, you know, David and, and respect David as the future king, you know. So you have this person, yeah. you know, uh, who is supposed to be the king, but he's not, and was supposed to rightfully be a king, but then he sees he is a best friend for this person who is not supposed to be rightful king, but got all, uh, um, honors. Um, yeah, honors, not not honors, like Unjir, yeah. uh, I forgot, but God made him king, you know, I forgot the, in, Portuguese, in English. Okay. You know, anointing, you know, okay, but God yeah. anointed him. So anointing in Portuguese is unjir unsam. Okay. So God's anointed him to become a king, you know. So mm. Jonathan, he, he's not like jealous of him, but he kind of respects him. And they become these really big friends. And he even defends David to his father, yeah. you know. I think that is an excellent point. Because really, David and Jonathan, in the world's eyes, should be arch enemies. Yes. David is the one that's going to take the throne from Jonathan, in a sense. But Jonathan can see what his father can't, right? That it's about the Lord's anointing rather than just personal power. 
Um, and that's Saul can't see that. Mm-hmm. And again, the, the narrative is time and time again, he operates from a place of fear, mm-hmm. afraid to lose his power. So basically, it says next that Saul urged his servants and his son Jonathan to assassinate David. So he is full on ready to take whatever measures are necessary. And now you can see the spiral, right? At first it was just, we can maybe even say, you know, like, really God, you're going to tell Saul he can't be king just because he made the sacrifice instead of Samuel. But now you see the heart of Saul. It's becoming very, very apparent who Saul really is on the inside because he will do whatever it takes to get rid of David, even if that's who God has chosen. And we see that David does the exact opposite kind of in the next part of the story. But basically, Jonathan, it says because of his affection for David, he tells David what his father's planning. They kind of devise this little code word thing. He's going to shoot some arrows and send a boy after it. And if he says a certain thing to the boy, that means David needs to run. So sure enough, that's what happens. And David basically lives on the run. And Michael even saves David's life, His da- Saul's daughter. So you can imagine Saul's very frustrated because his own daughter and own son are yes. working against him at this point. Um, so David lives basically on the run from Saul for years, right? And so kind of in this time, there's these back and forth stories where Saul gets wind of where David's living. And you kind of have to understand the geography. I mean, it is the wilderness of Judah is not like a great place. Like it's um, very deserty looking. There's not a ton of life. There's lots of little caves and alcoves. Um, so David's hiding out here. And without modern satellite technology, you can't really know. Um, so David lives on the run. And there's times where basically David um, is almost caught, right? So Saul's taking a dump in one of the caves, relieving himself. Um, And David comes up and cuts off a piece of his cloth, right? Basically symbolizing, I could have killed you. Uh, And he comes out of the cave and he says, look, I'm not trying to kill you, right? I'm not trying to take your position from you. Like, that's not what I'm trying to do. As long as you are king, you're king. I'm not you know, trying to do God's job for him. And again, that is a huge reason why David's heart is aligned with God's because so many times people see what God, they think they know what God wants to do and so they do it by their own means. But David is content to wait on God and his timing to make him king, right? He's anointed, he knows that this is what God has given him, but as long as Saul is king, he honors that God has placed him on the throne. So he again proves where Saul is jealous and wants to kill David to remove a rival, David proves that he has the heart of God because he doesn't see Saul as his rival, right? He sees Saul as the person that God has placed and that he trusts in God's timing. So anyways, Saul gives kind of this fake lament where he's like, oh, you're better than man than me, blah, blah, blah. But once again, the spirit of this anger that has just rocked Saul's life time and time again takes over. He continues to chase David up into the point where David gets to this town and there's kind of like the dedicated bread, right? That's meant for God. David and his men are hungry. The priests help him out and give him the food. And I believe he even takes Goliath's sword. Um, and so it, it, Jesus kind of alludes to this later on, right? You know, in a kind of in a story of like David ate the consecrated bread, you know what I mean? So anyways, that's kind of why I'm, I mentioned that. So eventually David... Has to he spares Saul's life again. Samuel passes away at this point. Um, sorry, I'm just trying to fast forward because we have a lot to cover. 
So again, he spares his life. So David then begins to live among the Philistines, the arch enemies of the Israelites. Um, And so in this place, he kind of convinces this guy that, um, yeah, yeah, I'm with you guys. I'll fight the Israelites when that's not his intention at all. He's not going to plan on killing his own people. And this guy is convinced that David will work with them, that he's not going to betray them. But the other Philistines are like, nah, leave him. Leave him at home. We do not want this guy with us. So they eventually do that, right? Um, David kind of lives his time. And this is where it's interesting because David does raid towns. He does raid places for his people um, and takes and pillages. So he's not like this perfect Prince Charming by any means, right? He's not like your clean cut, like Mm -hmm. perfect role model that you'd want every one of your kids to follow. Um, But eventually... um, I'm just looking it up here. I don't know if you want to, if you have any thoughts, I'll let you interject at this point. Uh, no. Okay. So the Philistines, as they're about to go to this fight, um, and David is left behind, Saul goes, he's so desperate at this point because Samuel's passed away to, to get direction. And so he consults a medium, a witch basically. And Samuel comes from the dead and he's just like, why are you bothering me? You're going to die. You know what I mean? Like, you have run away and disobeyed the Lord a long time ago. So what do you like? What are you bothering me about? And you know, obviously Saul is just terrified at this point. But anyways, they have to fight the fight. Him and unfortunately his son Jonathan are wiped out, killed by the Philistines. Um, and rather than you know David being in triumph, he's heartbroken, yes. right? He he sees this as God's anointed killed. He sees his best friend killed. Um, and at this point. He recognizes he's got to get out of town with the Philistines as well. So David goes back, um, and he basically fights a few more of the battles, blah, blah, blah. David learns of the death. And then what's interesting at this point, he gets he goes back to a town called Hebron, and he's anointed king of Judah, which is not all of Israel. So the tribe of Benjamin and Judah, the tribes that he belongs to, make him king over them. But the tribes that basically followed Saul are not in it yet. They try and anoint um, a child of Saul's, one of his one remaining sons, or is it Jonathan's son? Uh, It's Saul's son, I think. Okay. So Ishboseth, proclaimed king of Israel. Try and say that three times fast. So there's this kind of conflict between the two, but basically at the end of all of it, after, I believe, 11 years, David rules in Hebron. Eventually, he is given complete control over all the kingdom mm-hmm. of Israel. So Israel and Judah. And he rules over that for quite some time. Um, but this is kind of... So he gets this. He spares, I believe, part of the family of Saul. He's not going to wipe him out. He's trying to say, you know, that's not my intention. That's not what we're trying to do. But there's still this tension between Israel and Judah at this point, yeah. right? It, you can see kind of the cracks between these two. Um, and then, during all this, David moves the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. He takes um, the, a town ruled by the Jebusites um, and because it's kind of at a central location. It's right at the edge of the kingdom of Judah and Israel. So he kind of wants to have a, a middle ground place. Yes. He doesn't want to rule from Hebron. So they take Jerusalem. He kind of makes that his, um, his capital, capital city. Yes. And so, at this point, Jerusalem is not a big city. It's really not. It's kind of just one little hill. Mm -hmm. I don't even... Yeah, it was fortified. But um, 
Anyways, David once again wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant. I believe he stops and then it starts the the house that it gets left at. It starts just blessing this guy out the wazoo. So then David's like, no, 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 actually bring that, bring that to Jerusalem. We want that. But David's intention kind of shifts and he wants to, he kind of has some military victories. Sorry. He expands the kingdom um, and it's, things are going well for him, right? Um, up into the point where you can kind of begin to see, just like in all of our lives, we begin to have success, right? God has placed us where we're meant to be. He's seen God be faithful. And sorry, guys, we're definitely fast-forwarding a yeah. lot. But I think the next big marker is the story of David and Bathsheba. And this is where you can, once again, David up into this point, whether he's he's had his flaws, he's killed people, he's raided, but you can just see his heart is, I want to follow, follow the Lord. But it says, in the season, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab, the Israelite yeah. army, to fight the Amorites. Um, and as they're fighting them, he stays behind in Jerusalem. So he's kind of slipping in his role, where normally, the Bible even hints, normally the kings go out, David's chilling back in the town while everyone else is doing the fighting. And, then, and this gets him in a little bit of trouble. So yes. I'll switch it over to you at this point. Uh, so maybe like one, one, one thing, one funny thing, not funny, but I was, uh, I had this, um, I was reading, going through this online uh, study about the, about the, the kingdom, you know, uh, why David chose that specific place has, has uh, the capital and we had this this map of uh, so it was in the top of the hill it's, it was the best the perfect geopolitical place to put a capital because it was mm. protected with this hill so everyone would want to raid this capital you would see them coming and then they, they build something really interesting they build the walls right when the, the hill ends and then they even had to to get water they even had to excavate all the rock you know, to be able to have this small opening mm. and then everyone wants to water, like pure water. We yeah. have to kind of throw uh, throw something to the, to, I think it was a river and then bring water to, 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 to the town. So it was just big, this big thing. And something interesting I read is just like one, when they were excavating one of the, the big pool there. Uh, so people were excavating from one side and another people from the other side. But for some reason, you know, they got, they, they came together to one specific place to make the tunnel and everything. Okay. So it's, it's a really fun and interesting mm. thing. You know, I've read about that story. But yeah, so David just stays behind and then he's just chilling there. And then he, he sees these guys, uh, wife, uh, yeah, Uriah. Yeah, taking a shower and everything, you know, and then he just uh, kind of like uh, desires that lady, yeah. you know, to become his, uh, to just sleep around yeah. with her and everything and then just... And I think it's, you know, there's back and forth was this rape, you know, mm, you just yes. can't really say no to a king. And then there's the other side of like, okay, you're bathing on the rooftop right in front of the king's palace where he has a nice view. So was there intention on Bathsheba's part? We just, you know, I think we can say that no matter what it was a, a broken situation but what's interesting um we'll continue with the story is what god really sees as the sin here but anyways yeah so continue on so yeah uh so as a king he sends some people to come and get uh Beersheba, 
uh, and he ended up sleeping with her and everything. And yeah, he find himself in this in this situation. You know, he slept with these his office officer, you know, his wife. So he finds himself in this position, you know. The officer's wife, husband, you know, when he comes the office, the office when he comes back, you know, he will find a, find all these bad situation going on and how how is that gonna end? And you know, so that's when David has this scheme to assassinate the yeah. the officer. I forgot his name. You're right. Yeah. So right. what's super interesting about this story that I've heard too is so this was not a private thing. Right in the sense of when David sleeps with Bathsheba, the servants know. Right, he oh, sent yeah, servants yeah, yeah. talk, so people clearly know that David has done this. Oh, right, and yeah. he is the king. Mm-hmm. So what are you gonna say, right? And the problem is too that Bathsheba gets pregnant. Yes, you know it's one thing to sleep with her, but now she She's has pregnant, David's yes. child. So David invites Uriah back, and he says, "Go ahead and sleep with your wife." And so we have to understand in the cultural context of what David is doing, it's a shame culture. So David is trying to mitigate his shame and mitigate Uriah's shame. But Uriah knows what's going on. We can't be naive to the fact that Uriah has an idea of what David is doing, right? So Uriah, by not sleeping with his wife, by sleeping at the on the steps, right? He is making a public act showing people, I did not sleep. This is not my child. He is, saying, he is publicly shaming David at this point. Mm-hmm. And so... This becomes a battle of shame. Who is going to take yes. the blame? So Uriah is throwing it back onto David. He's not accepting what David has done. And so David, then that's when he decides, okay, I got to get rid of this guy because of what he's doing to me. Um, and that really becomes the key issue, right? So Uriah is killed in the battle. He, you know, David does all this behind his back. Um, but then... You know, we kind of think, okay, is David going to get away with this? But Nathan approaches him and he yes. tells this really heartbreaking story, right? About this poor man who has this little uh, sheep. It's all the only one he has. His family loves this sheep. And then a rich man comes who has plenty of sheep and he says, I want that one. Kill it. And David goes, Bring me this man. I'm going to kill him right now. And Nathan, I love this line. I have to find it. And he says, um, I don't want to ramble on. He says, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house, his wives and the kingdom of Israel and Judah. And if if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? And I think this is the heart of who David is. Because I think if we all are really honest, when we're called out in that way, we can become defensive. We can begin to say, well, this and that and the other. But David's immediate response is, I have sinned against the Lord. And and Nathaniel says, yes, the Lord has forgiven you. You're not going to die from this. But the child isn't going to live. And it just is this heartbreaking story of how you see disobedience and sin in... um, lack of responsibility as the king leads to this situation where david is weeping all night before the lord and the child ends up passing and they're they're terrified the servants are terrified what david's gonna how he's gonna react but he gets up and he says okay i'll eat now and they're like what what do you mean he says well you know what i went before the lord and all i can do is say god please spare the child but now it's over what can i do and i think 
it's just such a humbling moment. Yes. Yeah, I'm, go ahead. Yes. Uh, yeah, I just feel like this story, it's, you know, it's just, that's why I feel like a lot of people who read David's story, you know, they kind of feel confused, you know, in all this, all what's going on in the Bible, you know, because the Bible kind of see, show all these people with, uh, black and white and everything, yeah. you know, and all these things. But you get into David, you know, you see a lot of white and you just see a little bit of black. So mm. you kind of get confused into like how how to how do I portray how do I put this story, you know? And then I just feel like the story of David is just an amazing story in the sense of like him, you know, just falling, but then him quickly, you know, just kind yeah. of realizing like, oh, okay, this was a bad thing and I want to go back to God. But also like this story just shows that even though, you know, you, 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 you will repent and everything, you know, this doesn't, that doesn't mean that the consequence of your sin, you yeah. know, it won't come, you know, because what you did has a consequence, you know, in yeah. the world, you know, all, the, all your sin has a big consequence in the world, you know, so that the consequence will come and what we see from here is just this kind of like this just roller coaster, you yeah. know, just things going bad and then him with his son, you know, his son wanting to take over, you know, his kingdom and then him, David becoming this humble person, you know, instead of just fighting his son, he just ran away yeah. and then he hides the same thing he did with Saul, he just kind of ran away and he yeah. hides and everything. So I just feel like David's story is just this very interesting story in the whole Bible. And you, you don't find a story like that. Yeah. You know, it's his unique uh, yeah. personality. Definitely. And I think that's part of the reason why David becomes kind of this archetype king in the history of Israel. Like, obviously, the grass is always greener in the past. Like, mm -hmm. we always paint um, what has gone before as like the good old days, right? But David kind of becomes that good old days king. Yeah. Uh, as Israel's story progresses, and we'll see why. But yeah, you touched on the next part. Absalom is one of David's sons. Basically, to make a really long story short, one of David's daughters is raped by one of his sons. It's Absalom's sister. Absalom's furious. And again, the weakness of David shows up again because he's pretty like flaky on the whole thing like there's no real consequence it's just yeah. kind of like let's all just pretend it didn't happen sweep it under the rug and absalom's not having it so he kind of devises this plan where he has this big dinner party and he invites everyone and he ends up killing this guy and all the other sons flee they think he's gonna kill him and absalom's a good looking guy he's uh the kind of the soul yeah 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 he yeah again it's the soul archetype yeah. right and so he begins to whisper rumors that ah, I would be a better king than David, blah, blah, blah. And so, like you said, this again, it's like the back and forth of David's character. His failure also presents the opportunity to show his heart towards God because he says, I'm not going to fight him. If he wants to take it, then God has removed mm -hmm. me. Yes. And I'm not going to be a Saul and fight for my kingdom, right? If God has removed me because of who I am and my character flaws, so be it. Let my son take it. So he flees. Ends up being he does not want Absalom killed. He wants things to be resolved. The two armies fight. Absalom comes after David. And David's officer disobeys him and kills Absalom because his hair gets caught in a tree or whatever. So all this to say, um, we need to fast forward because we're, we're running out of time here and we have a lot to cover. What's interesting is the two last thoughts on David is 
the son that now becomes the promised son to rule is a man named Solomon. And Solomon is a son of Bathsheba. Yeah. So David's very sin, his brokenness, that because David ends up taking Bathsheba into his family as a wife. But God uses the the foolish, broken decision of David to bring about his purposes anyways. God could have used any of those sons, but he chooses Solomon, yeah. right? And it, there's something about Solomon, too, that Solomon, his heart, at least at the beginning, yes. was postured towards God. So God's not going to punish Solomon by the failure of his parents. You get what I'm saying? And I think that's important for us to understand. So the last thought I kind of want to touch on with David is his desire to build this temple. So he wants to build a permanent, beautiful structure for Yahweh. He believes, like, God, you deserve this, right? That I want to build this. You don't need it. David understood that it's not a building that you dwell in. And you can read that, David and Solomon's both words. It's not like we're containing you in this building, God. We know you're much bigger, but we want to honor you by building this heaven and earth space where we can encounter you and have this place that is worthy of your name, right? And we want to have something greater than the tabernacle. And so God basically tells David, because of the things you've done, the blood on your hands, no, but your son is going to do it. So Solomon rises up and, you know, there's the story about how he asked for wisdom instead of money or riches or women, blah, blah, blah. And God blesses him and he gives him all those other things that he didn't ask for. And Solomon begins to really the peak of is the the kingdom of israel is under solomon's reign david has done all the hard fighting solomon can now consolidate and he has lots of vassal states they give him money but um the problem with solomon is twofold one he now because of the building projects he wants to do increases the labor of the israelite people so the promise that samuel had given that this guy's going to start enslaving you and making you work for him is coming to fruition in Solomon, right? Especially in the temple project. Um, but there's also good things. The wisdom that he has, people from far away are a witness to it. Um, but as things progress, he's a ladies' man, kind of like yes. his dad. He, he learned that one from his dad. Yeah, and about these ladies' that it's not just like that. Solomon, he wants to protect i don't know kind of protect uh israel but the way he does that mm-hmm. is by marrying you know all yes. these big kingdoms you know uh Great daughters point. you know has a way to kind of build this relationship as kind of the way to kind of protect uh israel from all these other people you know and then creates connection you know so he used marriage as a way to connect him to all these these kingdoms and everything and that's bring that brings a big a big problem because just remember what god said god put them as these people who are supposed to be different from all other kingdoms you know but you are bringing you're bringing uh princess you know from all these other kingdoms you know into you you know so that means that all these princes will come with everything they know you know with all their gods and everything you know so when they come they bring all their gods and everything so his family becomes this a big mess you know into you have this lady with her with her gods and everything we have this with her gods and everything we have this one with her gods and everything so it's kind of a mix you know so you see this royal family that is supposed to be focusing only in God, but this royal family is just a mess and everything, you know. And just this just shows what happened. It just kind of a guideline, kind of an Easter egg into what is gonna happen 
when he dies, you know, just mm. this roller coaster and everything, you know. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. It wasn't just that he liked ladies. It was very much a political yes. thing. And Solomon, like you're saying, becomes kind of, in a way, a king like all the other kings, yes. in a sense. There is very much a mixture of the good and bad mm -hmm. with him. Yeah, and the, the, the thing is, the story of Solomon, just when he started doing that, portrays, portrays him as Pharaoh. You know, kind of Israel, Israel, Pharaoh, you know, he, he institutes slavery, you know, to build all the things that he's building, you know. So he makes the people, you know, the people, the God's people into slave, you know, and then you have all the slaves who come and then build this thing just like it was happening with Pharaoh, you know. And then has all this wife, all this God, the same thing that was happening with Pharaoh, you know, and it's just like this so now we have we're just living in egypt you know mm. we're like just having this guy who's not different from pharaoh yeah and creating fortified cities and chariot cities which is again you know the way that you defend yourself mm -hmm. from a human standpoint i guess the last thing that i want to read so is the consecration of the temple because i think it's really oh, yes, important yes, for understanding yes. so this is god's response to solomon as he consecrates the temple and so it says as for you this is god speaking if you will follow me with integrity and godliness as David your father did, obeying all my commands, decrees, and regulations, then I will establish the throne of your dynasty over Israel forever. For I made this promise to your father David, one of your descendants will always sit on the throne of Israel. But if you or your descendants abandon me and disobey the commands and decrees I've given you, and if you serve and worship other gods, then I will uproot Israel from this land I've given them. I will reject this temple that I've made holy to honor my name. I'll make Israel an object of mockery and ridicule among the nations. And though this temple is impressive now, all who pass by it will be appalled and will gasp in horror. They'll ask, why did the Lord do such a terrible thing to this land and to this temple? And the answer will be because his people abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their ancestors out of Egypt, and they worshipped other gods instead of bowing down to him. That is why the Lord has brought all these disasters on them. So it's like, it's almost a foreshadowing of what's definitely going to happen. Yes. Um so anyways, Solomon eventually passes on and he hands over the kingdom to, and we're going to skip over a lot of these guys, but I think it's just important to know what happens next. So basically Rehoboam, which is Solomon's son, already increases the tensions yes. that exist. So basically the elders of the people come and they say, you know, your dad kind of made all these harsh regulations. He made us workers for him. Like we were asking to... For you to lighten these things and so the wise elders say yeah this is a good move for you like it's gonna make the people like you they're gonna be loyal to you forever if you do this but then all his young dumb friends come and say no nah, bro that's gonna show weakness you need to tell these people my um, genitals are thicker than my father's thighs yes. <laughs> it says my little finger but that is a euphemism for something else and so he goes he takes his friend's advice and he says yeah if you thought my father whipped you with like cords, I'm going to whip you with scorpions kind of deal. So obviously you can tell that people would take that very well. No, they didn't. And so the northern kingdom, the kingdom that did belong to Saul originally splits. They say, we're not going to put up with this. And God even says, you know, no, this isn't right. So he gives the authority to a man named Jeroboam. So God chooses him. Um, but basically, Jeroboam, right away, and again, it's the story all the way to the beginning. Jeroboam fears 
that if people still need to worship Yahweh at the temple in Israel, right? So the, the central worship of Yahweh is still in, in sorry, I said Israel, in Jerusalem, mm -hmm. which now belongs to Rehoboam. Yeah. So he, on his own accord, not consulting God, decides he's going to make his own sacred places in the north and Dan, and then I believe in Samaria, maybe? Yes, Samaria. Samaria, mm -hmm. which become later becomes the capital, capital of Israel. Yes. And he creates a bowl. So not only does he create two separate worship centers, he creates a bowl image, which is Baal, which is the Canaanite god, is represented by a bowl oftentimes. So it's they're still worshiping Yahweh, in air quotes, at these sites, but he's doing it in a totally inappropriate manner. So God immediately is like, no, 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 no. You're not it. You know what I mean? You've already disobeyed me. So this creates a ton of criticism and conflict and we'll get into this into our next episodes this is kind of where the prophets arise yes. so they begin to call out the kings of israel they begin to try and steer the people back to yahweh um and so we have to understand the prophet the book of the prophets is intermixed into all of these secession of kings so mm -hmm. the main point for us to understand at this point is israel and judah are two distinct kingdoms that both would claim the same heritage, both would say that they're quote-unquote worshiping Yahweh, but Judah is in the line of David, where the promise remains, mm -hmm. and Israel kind of becomes this quasi-syncretistic um, yeah, nation that like worships Yahweh, but it kind of it always seen in, in an inappropriate way. Yes. So they kind of have a succession of kings back and forth, good, bad, medium, mediocre. Blah, blah, blah. But it gets to the point where um, after the kingdom split in disobedience, it gets to a king named Ahab who mm -hmm. marries a woman named Jezebel who's from the Phoenicians, which is doesn't matter. It's another nation. I've so taken it. That's, that's uh, Israel, not Judah. Israel, yes. thank you. Yeah. So basically, he makes Samaria the capital of the north. Jerusalem is the capital of the south. And this period is filled with like uh, Ahab basically switching over all of the work because of his wife Jezebel who comes from the Phoenicians and worships the Canaanite god of Baal Ahab changes through his wife basically manipulates through him to change all the worship of Yahweh to the worship yeah. of Baal basically making them like the nations that have gone before them worshiping the same gods so this is where Elijah comes in he really advocates against Ahab and Jezebel specifically he slaughters the prophets of Baal. This is where the fire comes down and burns up the altar and proves that Yahweh is the real true God. And that he even reigns in storms is actually a mockery of Baal because Baal is supposed to be the storm God. Yes. So Yahweh creates a, a storm and then still lights it on fire. So it's a, a direct um, jab at this Canaanite God. So anyways, um, basically Ahab and Jezebel are removed and there's a larger power within the Mesopotamian Middle Eastern world named Assyria at this point. The Assyrians were absolutely cruel, dominating people. They were really kind of the first um, major empire that's starting to develop. And the Assyrians were the kinds of people that like cut off kings' heads put them on pikes in their bedroom yeah. and then slept with their wives in front of it. You know, these are not, they're the people who drove spikes through people while they were still alive and lined them up. These guys were not people you wanted to mess with. And if you did mess with them, they would utterly destroy you. So through all the politicking of this time period, 
um, the Assyrians come in and they eventually um, lay siege to Samaria, which is the capital of Israel. So in 722 BC, so these dates are kind of to help keep us on track of where we're kind of at. Um, Israel falls, Samaria is completely destroyed and leveled by the Assyrians, and the the tribes of Israel, so the nation of Israel, is deported. And this is actually where Israel disappears from the story. So if you've ever heard of like the lost tribes of Israel and you watched a weird history channel episode that says they're in Africa now or something, like this is where it all comes yeah. from, right? So the Assyrians deport them, meaning they take them out of the land that they existed so that they're not like gonna raise another rebellion and scatter them all over the world, all over the Assyrian Empire. Mm. So um, basically, they come after Judah as well, which is under a king named Hezekiah, one of the good kings. And basically, one of the prophets says, you need to trust that God is going to deliver you. And he does. God rescues them. The Assyrians um, are defeated by Yahweh. They actually like kill themselves because they get terrified. They think there's an army coming up. So God rescues Judah. So at this point, Israel's kind of wiped out. They're gone from the story. And only the kingdom of Judah remains. Um, I'm sorry, Paulo, I'm talking a lot at this point. No, I'm just no, trying to get ahead, the... So Judah then would um, basically be around for another 150 years. So until a new empire arises called the Babylonian Empire. And Babylon, we talked about Babel in one of the very first episodes that we did. They come out of that same city in that same area. And Babylon, um, because of Judah, Judah follows kind of the same pattern of Israel. Back and forth, back and forth. There's a good kingdom named Josiah that does a lot of reforms. Um, but eventually, God's had enough, right? Even Judah has kind of slipped into this idol worship and just is not following following Yahweh. Yeah. And so Babylon comes, and this becomes the catastrophic moment for Israel's history. They come, they destroy Jerusalem, they level it, they destroy the temple, which is the, the heaven and earth place. This was the place where the Israelite, or where the people of God would come and encounter God's presence, right? And so the temple's destroyed, it's wiped out, and it just leaves um, the people of God with this kind of sense of like, is it over? Yeah. You know, this project, we were meant to be these people to be a light to the nations, but now we've been conquered. God's temple is destroyed. We never really lived up to the hype, if, if you can put it that way. And so they're exiled into Babylon. They're taken away. This is kind of when um, the book of Daniel is written. He's in... And Babylon's eventually taken over by the Persians. But basically where our story leaves um, is the result of all of this. Yes. is basically broken covenant. That Israel did not hold up its end of the covenant with Yahweh. And they just became like all the other nations. At one point, they even began to sacrifice children like the Canaanites before mm -hmm. them. Abusing the poor, etc. Like kings were dominating the poor. And so they really, the brokenness is that the nation that was meant to be a light and called the other nations into a new pattern of living just became exactly like the people they drove out in the book of uh, Joshua. And so um, even we'll get into it, Gehenna, which is the word, the Greek word translated for hell in the New Testament, was actually a valley in Jerusalem, um, the Hinnom Valley, where the people of Israel at or sorry, the people of Judah at their worst were sacrificing children yeah. to um, Molech, I believe, which is the God that requires child sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And then it became the place, because of the atrocities that happened there, became the rubbish 
uh, bin for the city. That's where people threw their trash. And so there was a constant fire that was always burning there to burn up the trash. And that's even where the illustration of where the fire never goes out, right? Mm -hmm. So anyways, that's an aside at this point. Um, But the people are exiled into Babylon. And then this is where Jeremiah is even. So Jeremiah 29.11, which I think is a good place. We'll get into the prophets. But it says, I know the plans I have for you, right? So mm-hmm. God is basically telling them, the story's not over, yeah. but um, this is this is where you're at. Yes. And so where we're going to talk about in the next episode is the prophets and the exile. So their time in exile. But um, yeah, it's a heartbreaking story, yeah. honestly. It's a tragedy. Yes. It's, it's not a happy story. I don't know if you have maybe any final thoughts on it. Uh, no, I, I just feel like... This part, you know, the the end of book of the both books of the end of the books of Kings, you know, they just end in this really sad and kind of depressing moment, you know, in the story, you know, you just you just live with the story, and I, I and I just feel like so you get to the end of the book of Kings, you know, the second book of Kings, you know, with all these people who you read the Bible since the beginning, they they're supposed to achieve all these great things, you know. But then they're reduced to slaves, you know, mm-hmm. they're reduced to all these, you know, people who, you know, they're just becoming slaves, you know, they don't understand, well, they don't have a notion of home, you know, because of all these things, you know, because their home, the place they would call home, you know, it's, it get destroyed, you know, so there is no notion of home. And I think once you, once you go to the, to the New Testament, you know, you just realize, like, you have that question, like, where exactly is home? Because... Going back to Israel, you know, going back to Judah, you know, Judah, everything that made them call this place home, it's kind of destroyed, you know, and all these things, you know, and then when you read Revelation, you know, you just kind of have this same idea and everything, you know. But at the end of the book, we have this amazing story of this uh, guy. He, I forgot his name, you know, he's supposed to be king. You know, but he's not king, he's there, you know, and he's there, he's slave. And, in Babylon. Uh, mm-hmm. he's, he's in Babylon, he's slave and everything. But then the king remembers that there's this guy who's supposed to be king, you know. And then he calls him to the table and then he sits, he calls him to this honorable place and then he eats with them. Has So the book closed with this, with this hope, you know, that even in Babylon, you know, God will still remember them, you know. So you live there with this sad thing, but at least the place, this last story, you know, has kind of like, uh, I don't know if you want to search his name. Uh, he has a really interesting name. Okay. Uh, it kind of closed with this story as this, this place, this person who's supposed to be king, and but he's not king. But the king, even in Babylon, you know, God remembers, remember about them, and then he will make... He will, God will come back and rescue them from all that's going on there. Jehoiachin, uh, he was kind to Jehoiachin and yes. released him from prison on April 2nd of that mm-hmm. year. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just to encapsulate this whole thing and sum it up, because I think we're almost at two hours at this point, yep. um, is the project, the, the people of God who were meant to be a light to the nations, um, as they became more and more like the nations, it was from a place of disobedience, of covenant breaking. God never broke his end of the covenant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and even in the midst of covenant breaking, God continued to give his people promises. 
And so in exile, like as they have been destroyed, everything is hanging up in the air. Yes. So what seemed like the solution to this broken world, um, the people of God, Israel or Judah, um, now are just as broken as yes. the world they were meant to, mm-hmm. to help fix. So what is God going to do? It's that same question back in Genesis. What is God going to yeah. do now, right? And we'll explore how he begins to to answer that question through the prophetic mm-hmm. words that are given, through the prophets, and what God intends for his people to learn in the midst of exile. But at this point where we leave the story, it is very much up in the air. What is God yeah. going to do? Is, are, are the people done? Is this chosen people done with? Is God finally ready to move on? Um, and that's kind of where we leave in the story. And to prevent us from rambling on anymore, I think that's a good place to end. Yes, yes, I think that's a great place to end. Uh, maybe I feel like uh, at least at the, right in the beginning of next episode, we'll have to at least take the first 15 minutes just to kind of make a big summary of what is happening. Yeah. Why? Because I just feel like this is kind of a connecting point to the, to what is coming next, which is the book of uh, the 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 prophets uh, and then you know so the big of prophets is one of big uh, chunk of it so i just feel like we will we will go through that we'll start we're summarizing everything so you guys yeah. kind of have uh are in in have the big picture yeah, exactly but yes i think this is there was an amazing conversation long Definitely. but an amazing conversation Definitely. so yes we will Definitely be collecting questions, uh, and so if you have any questions about this, we know we skipped a lot of things, so please uh, write them down and we will go over them. And more importantly, you can read it for yourself. Yes, yes. (laughs) All right, guys, we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. This is just a brief reminder that if you've had a question come up from this discussion, or you just have a question in general that you want to ask us on the podcast, uh, now is the time to do it. We want to make sure that we get these questions in for the end of the season Q&R. And we cannot wait to hear your guys' questions, to read them, and to be able to respond. But we can't do that unless you send them to us. So make sure if you're a part of Kingdom Movement already, you can personally message us your question. Or you can send them via our Instagram. And we will make sure to read those. And hopefully we will answer your question on the season finale question and answer uh, question and response episode. All right. Thanks, guys.